0: To the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 25 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Um, Strictly speaking, it's probably not actually episode 25 at all, it's probably episode 29 or 30, because I did throw in a few bonus episodes here and there along the way. So uh, so yeah, apologies for that slight factual inaccuracy. Um, this week, I'm going to, um, rather than interviewing anyone, I'm going to have a little bit of a rambly, monolog type review of various things that have been going on in police world in the last week or so, because I think there's quite a lot has been going on and it's given me a lot of time to sort of think about those things and lucky you share those uh, ideas and thoughts with you. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the revelations. Uh, It's the output from an IOPC uh, investigation into a number of Metropolitan Police Officers from Charing Cross who have been uh, investigated and found guilty of uh, all sorts of misdemeanours and disciplinary offences. So just so I don't make an assumption that you've no idea what I'm talking about, uh, this is an investigation that was carried out into behaviour by quite a large number of officers from Charing Cross which is right in the centre of London and um, their behaviour I believe took place in uh, around 2016-17. The investigation was launched in 2018 and uh, there are all sorts of things would appear to have been going on. So amongst other things they talked about um, joking about Uh, going to a festival dressed as a known sex offender, um, uh, making very horrible comments about raping, uh, about black people, um, pretty unpleasant stuff about disabled people, um, all sorts really, pretty much everything that you don't want your police officers to be thinking or saying i suppose so i was asked to do an interview last night with the times radio to discuss this and when i got the email this is what happens they literally um contact you several you know hours before they actually want to speak to you and sometimes even less time. They'll literally ring me up and go, can you come on and talk about such and such in 45 minutes? And you think, oh, shit, I don't know. Um, firstly, in this particular issue, I had no clue what they were talking about, so I had to get myself on uh, the BBC website and various other news sources to try and figure out what on earth was going on. And uh, I agreed to speak to them yesterday evening In the end, the interview never went ahead because as often, again, what often happens with these things is they'll ask you to make a comment on something or to be interviewed on something and then something else will come along to to change things. So once I'd read a few sources of information regarding all of this, I kind of had a bit of a... I went into a bit of a tailspin about it because it's really, really complicated and I just, was, I just needed to be sure in my own mind that what I was going to say was fair and balanced as much as possible. Because like everything else in policing and the media and the way the media covers policing, uh, things are never straightforward and you never get the full story um, so in an ideal world you would be able to actually look at the uh, behavior on the evidence and come up with some sort of you know balanced view of things but in this case all you've got to all you've got to go on is is what's been reported and there was also something there for me about trying to decide what the Sensible, I suppose, is the word. The sensible approach to all of this is, so so when I when I say sensible, I don't mean that in any way. I'm kind of excusing it or condoning it or or anything like that. Because I'm not. I'm really not. But uh, it seemed yesterday in the news that people were literally falling over themselves to to kind of outdo one another. In terms of the level of uh, outrage, so uh, the, the Home Secretary was described as saying that she was appalled and sickened by it. Uh, Sadiq Khan was uh, was interviewed, and he he was saying very similar things, probably even stronger con- condemnation of it, and the policing minister. Kit Malthouse described it as abhorrent behaviour that shamed the Met Police. But I suppose, having been a fairly senior officer myself in the past, one of the things that I find quite curious, I suppose, is that there was 14 officers investigated. Um, Two were dismissed for gross misconduct. Um, Two resigned but nine are still serving with the force so that suggests to me that of the 14 nine had no case to answer now that that may be putting two and two together and making 14. it could be that uh, there are still disciplinary processes in place around those nine i don't know but i suppose there are two ways of looking at this, and everything everything I say in my book and everything I say on this podcast, I try really, really hard to be as balanced as possible. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take sort of treat this issue a bit like a school debating society, and kind of kind of say you know both sides, because so, I'm really quite torn on all of this kind of stuff. So what I'm going to do first of all is I'm going to argue the case for why this is completely unacceptable, horrific, um, and and all of the bad things. So agreeing with Pris Patel and those people coming out and condemning it. So so what I say is, in this day and age, it is completely unacceptable for public servants of any any type of public servant to have uh, views or to express views uh, or to make humour about things that are deeply offensive to many people in society. It doesn't matter whether they're teachers, whether they're doctors, whether they're prison officers, whether they're police officers. But I suppose what I'd say is, It's particularly unacceptable for police officers to be having those sorts of views. And without any shadow of a doubt, anybody who says those things, whether it's in jest or not, has no place in the modern police service. And I don't want, I wouldn't have wanted to have served with people like that, and it massively undermines trust in the organisation. There's also something there for me about an unbelievable level of naivety that they not only have those views and make those sorts of jokes, if if indeed they even are jokes, because I don't think they're terribly funny, that they put them onto a technical platform whether that's whatsapp whether it's facebook messenger or text messages or whatever that that cannot be deleted and yes you might be able to delete them from your own mobile device but they'll still be there on other people's mobile devices and if you really really want to retrieve them um maybe not in terms of end-to-end encryption that's a different issue but um, there's all sorts of different ways of uh, getting those messages back if you really really wanted to So it's incredibly naive of people to think that in this day and age they can do that and get away with that. And that sort of says something about their judgment and it says an awful lot about their professionalism. The other thing for me, I suppose, taking the hard-line view on all this is what does this say about first-line supervision and second-line supervision? Clearly in certain parts of the Met and in other parts of the country, you will have a situation where you have potentially testosterone fueled young, probably, I imagine, young men. You, some of those have got very strong characters, and we've all seen it where you get one or two individuals who are, you know, for want of a better word, uh, bullies, um, who will have a very uh, destabilizing influence on a team, uh, where other members of the team will kind of go along with stuff that they know they shouldn't be going along with for fear of being ostracised. Supervisors uh, either know or suspect it's going on but are too weak to deal with it. And the net result is you get a very unpleasant culture developing either on a particular team or I've seen it even at a particular location. So do I think what has been going on with these people Is in any way acceptable? No, I don't. So that's the case for the hard line disapproval. But for me, I don't think it would be reasonable unless you uh, tried to articulate the counter argument to all of this. And please don't get me wrong, that does not mean that this is what I believe. I just think it's important to try and be balanced and sensible about all of this and to deal with it in a sort of proportionate sort of way rather than what the media are doing at the moment, which is uh, going, you know, trying to do one another for how terrible a picture uh, that they are painting of policing. So I suppose the case for the defence would be, firstly... This does not in any way um, suggest that the majority of police officers in the UK are behaving in this way. I know, and I'm sure if you're still serving or you have served, uh, you will know too, that that is not typical behaviour for the vast majority of police officers who come to work every day to do a good job and are very sensible about what they say and what they do and the nature of what they put onto social media uh, and all of that. And, and I read something earlier on today. It was, I think it was a letter from a BCU commander in the Met. Can't remember his name. But he made a really good point of saying, do not ever, ever put anything on social media or in a private message that you wouldn't be happy to have on the front page of a national newspaper or to have shown in a court, um, or to show your grandma. But I think that's a really, really good test, isn't it? So uh, getting back to the point, this behaviour is not typical of most police officers. The second point I'd probably make, and this is potentially a slightly more controversial point, I suppose, is that if you were to do a troll of social media posts between any group of young men in almost any profession in the UK whether that's uh, student doctors, whether that's um, young sales reps working in commerce, um, members of a football team or a rugby team or or uh, if you were to do a dip sample, I hate that word, but I'll just use it up now. A dip sample of those types of messages across lots of mobile devices only belonging to people from all sorts of parts of society, you will find this stuff. And um, and and who amongst us, you know, that whole thing about, you know, address the plank of wood in your own eye before you um, try and you know point out the speck of dust in your neighbour's eye, who amongst us can honestly put our hands on our hearts and say that we've never sent or forwarded a message to one of our friends, particularly I'm speaking for men here, I can't speak for women, but this tends to be a bloke thing, doesn't it, I think. Who amongst us can honestly put our hands on our hearts and say that we've never sent a message that is potentially grossly offensive to someone? I know I can't say that. Um, f- sometimes you'll get set, sent something uh, by WhatsApp from a mate that is uh, funny, but it's it makes you cringe. And um, you know, we've all, I think, probably forwarded messages like that to our friends for a laugh. So I suppose the point I'm making here is let's not everyone get too sanctimonious about all of this stuff, and it would be really, really interesting to see the mobile phone communications between uh, certain groups of MPs, between certain groups of senior officers in the police, uh, between barristers at court, uh, all of these other professions. I strongly suspect that you'll find exactly the same kind of stuff. The difference being is that uh, those professions are extremely unlikely to have their mobile devices seized and interrogated and having that stuff recovered. So that's the the other point I'd make. And the final point I'd make uh, to sort of, you know, articulate the case for the defence is... We all know that a lot of this humor, and I use that word really carefully because humor, what what to one person is hilarious can be deeply offensive to someone else. But we all know that all of this um, banter, dark humor, call it what you want, was uh, exchanged verbally between colleagues in the police over many, many years, and I can certainly remember many, many instances like that. The the difference is that today that tends to happen and be recorded in an electronic, uh, never forgotten, permanent uh, platform such as WhatsApp. And and I really um, kind of cringe to think what many of my colleagues, you know, they would have probably fallen foul of the same kind of stuff 20, if, it had, if it had existed 20 to 25 years ago. But here's the point. Does that mean that those individuals were evil, bad, terrible people who were incapable of being good police officers no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, the, some of the people who I, I'm thinking about who would have used that type of humour quite frequently were excellent police officers and, and very compassionate towards members of the public. But when they were in the pub or when they were letting their hair down or having a bit of a bit of banter in a police carrier or something like that, then there was some pretty toe-curlingly cringy things said to each other. So I've kind of gone through where, so this is where my head was last night when I was asked to do an interview with the Times. And I thought, oh God, this is a nightmare because if I if I start articulating some of the things I've just said in the case for the defense, then immediately, you're going to get lumped together as an apologist for that type of bad behaviour, whether you like it or not. It's going to be, well, there you go. Um, They're all as bad as each other, aren't they? Rather than taking a sensible uh, view. And I'm actually quite glad now that I didn't get asked for that interview because I think I probably would have um, made a bit of a hash of it and, and I probably would have ended up saying something that would have potentially been taken out of context so there you go i think it would be incomplete if i didn't at least give some thought or comment about where do we go from here with all of this kind of stuff is it either feasible or desirable for all police officers to have their social media accounts monitored by the organization what would the impact of that be on individual civil liberties would that be a proportionate response to all of this or is it a more proportionate response to deal with these things when they happen on a case-by-case basis i've got to say if i was still serving i'm not sure how i would feel if the West Midlands police had, had unrestricted access to all of my facebook whatsapp all of that kind of stuff. I wouldn't be very happy about that. And I think if that did happen as a response to this kind of stuff, the number of people who are, the very large number of people who are already leaving the police because they're fed up with it, fed up with not just this kind of stuff, but just everything, the... uh, The way the organisation's been treated, the stressful nature of the job, the hostility from the media and from politicians, the crap pay, the crap pension now. All of those things, I think, if that was to happen, I could see even more people leaving the job in frustration. So the next uh, story that has been in the headlines around policing this week has been the dreaded party gate. So again... Uh, just in case you've been uh, living in a cave for the last week or so or beamed in from another planet. Um, This is the investigation by Sue Gray, the senior civil servant, into all of the potentially, almost certainly, uh, unlawful gatherings at Dining Street during the course of lockdown, breaking exactly the Regulations, the COVID regulations that the government themselves had been expecting everybody else to adhere to. And just to remind you, the Met had previously stated that they would not retrospectively investigate breaches of coronavirus regulations and. Uh, had resisted very firmly doing that in respect of all sorts of allegations from journalists and members of uh, the opposition. So it came as something of a surprise to see the Met do something of an about turn on that and read into that what you will, whether that's a realization that that original position was unsustainable legally whether it was a a fear that they were going to be unfavorably generous towards the government and to Boris Johnson whether it was as a result of pressure being brought by Keir Starmer and the Labour Party etc I don't know what their rationale was for a change of heart on that, but one way or another, they then announced that they would do their own investigation into the unlawful gatherings. So my initial response to that was good, because why should it be acceptable for certain members of the public to be fined, in some cases, tens of thousands of pounds for birthday parties and all sorts uh, during lockdown, when the very people who have actually created this legislation appear to be getting away with it scot-free. So uh, my initial response was, that's really good. But then the Met appear to have snatched defeat from the jaws of victory by then announcing, oh, by the way, uh, you can't publish any details of individuals or individual gatherings in the report, which was being awaited with a great deal of trepidation by the government and a certain amount of glee by the opposition. And I must admit, my heart sank when I heard that. I just thought, oh, for God's sake, talk about couldn't organise a piss-up in a brewery. Had you not considered that before you made this announcement and it further creates an impression in the minds of policy makers, opinion formers and the general public that the police are utterly incompetent. And the Met tried to argue that this was necessary in order to prevent their criminal investigation being undermined by Sue Gray's report. But what had been made very clear all along was that Sue Gray had been supplying the Met with all of the information that she'd been gathering along the way. So to claim that her report would somehow undermine their investigation, I think, was completely flawed. And the analogy I would make would be that it's a bit like a documentary maker making a documentary about corruption in the building industry and then handing that finished tape and all of the evidence to the police saying, there you go, there's evidence of corruption and then the police turning around and saying, thank you very much, but you're not allowed to go and air that documentary on, on the BBC now. That would just be nonsensical, because it was their evidence in the first place that would have triggered that police investigation. So the other thing that is nonsensical about it is that the very worst outcome, as far as I'm aware, unless someone's going to disagree with me, the very worst outcome for anyone who's been found guilty of any offences will be a fixed penalty notice. So really, to, to make a spurious argument that this criminal investigation that might at worst result in a fixed penalty notice is going to be undermined by uh, Sue Gray disclosing her full report is just ridiculous. bearing in mind that we're talking about a scenario here where the career of the Prime Minister hangs in the balance at the moment and there is a growing sense of dissatisfaction with this entire government on the basis of their all sorts of things that have been well documented over the last couple of years for the Met to have stepped into that and potentially uh, Helped get Boris Johnson off the hook, or for that matter, just to have interfered with what is in the best interest, I believe, of the British public, i.e., for this whole issue to be, to have a spotlight shone on this entire issue, um, I just think is incredibly foolish and naive. And I just wonder if um, really the time probably has come for Cressida. Dick to step down, because I think a lot of this is a media campaign that will not stop until that happens. I'm not quite sure why they're so determined to get rid of her, but um, perhaps maybe the time has come, much as that grieves me to say that, because I'm a, a bit of a fan of Cress Dick, but um, maybe there is... Our requirement for a completely fresh start for the Met. And the final thing I want to um, just discuss before I finish. It's a right bundle of laughs this week, isn't it? Flipping heck. Oh, yeah. Bloody hell. Um, the last thing I want to discuss is the latest crime outcomes for England and Wales that was published on the 27th of January. And there was a front page article in the Times two three days ago saying that the clear up rate, so that is the offences that result in a charge or a caution, for the offence of burglary in England and Wales has now dropped to 5%. So 1 in 20 burglaries now results in a charge or a caution which is shockingly bad. But the statistic that they didn't talk about was that one for um, total recorded crime, which you've got to say is even worse. So if I... uh, I think I've talked about this before, but just to kind of illustrate the point that the job's a bit fucked, is that... Crime comes in England and Wales have steadily dropped, steadily dropped since Theresa May did everything that she did back in the early part of la- the last decade. So in 2013-14, the crime light comes, so this is successful charges and cautions for total recorded crime in England and Wales was 17%. A year later, it was still about 17%, 16.7%. 2005 is dropped to 13%. 16/17 it dropped to 11%. 2017/18 it dropped to 9%. 2018/19 dropped to 8. 2019 2020 to 7%. Uh, last year so the, the latest figures that have been released by the home office is that in year two, September 2021, it's dropped to 6%. So 6% of total recorded crime in England and Wales results in someone being either charged or summoned, which is shockingly bad. And, you know, when you think about all of the stuff I've said in my book, Uh, The fact that we've got, you know, um, 5,000 detective vacancies in England and Wales. I described the other day how, you know, I was given information from a serving officer that they're putting, in some places in the country, they're putting probationers into child abuse investigation teams because no one else wants to do it. Detectives leaving in droves. There was an interesting article in. I think it was Police Oracle uh, last week or the week before in one of the Southwest forces. I think it might have been Devon and Cornwall or Avon and Somerset, one of those Southwest forces. um, Something like 85% of detectives stating that they uh, were deeply demoralized and would like to get out of that role altogether. And something like 30% of detectives saying that they wanted to leave policing altogether because of the ridiculous bureaucratic burdens of trying to bring cases to court, the CPS insisting on full files, full prosecution-ready files, before they'll even make a decision about charging, which is just insane. Um, well then you know this is what you get anyway on a slightly different uh, completely different thing altogether um, just to kind of give you a bit of a you know where's my head with uh, work at the moment so as you know I'm a uh, technology advisor to um, startups and uh, tech companies and uh, yeah I'm sort of slightly falling out of love with it' um, I've, Falling, fallen out of love with it a bit over the last few months. Um, yeah, there's times when I would very happily just go and work in a bloody coffee shop or do something like that. Because uh, for anyone who's listening to this who works in the tech industry and is thinking of doing business with the police, I would say to them, most of them, you know what? Be careful what you wish for because it is a right pain in the backside. Why, why is it a pain in the backside? Because, okay, here we go. Um, the police are a nightmare to do business with. They can't make a, can't make a decision. Uh, they don't have much very much money, unfortunately, um, largely as a result of all of the things I've described in my book. Um they have IT teams who um, throw spanners in the works left, right, and center every time they try and you try and do anything different. They've got uh, information security teams who throw um, not just spanners in the works, but sackfuls of spanners in the works, um, trying to stop anything new from happening. You've got um, uh, startups and companies who are trying to do each other's legs. Um, stabbing each other in the back, trying to put each other out of business, um, pulling all sorts of dirty tricks to try and stop anyone from doing anything to improve the lot of policing because they're driven by money. Um, Yeah, it's it's a bit of a mess, really. I don't know. The jury's out for me a little bit at the moment, and... uh, I may just decide that it's all just too much like hard work which is a real real shame a real shame because what motivates me and has always motivated me uh, to do what i'm doing in my post-police life is to try and give policing the very best technology that they can possibly get um, and, and that's all about helping officers do their job it's also about um, bringing criminals to justice and it's about protecting members of the public. So, so that kind of public service ethos that I had when I joined the police is still alive and well. But you know what? Sometimes working in the tech industry, it's just a complete pain in the ass. Anyway, on that cheery note, I'll leave it with you. Um, next week, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, God willing, uh, an ex-colleague of mine, Lee Womby. Uh, Lee is such a lovely bloke. Uh, He retired as a chief superintendent uh, for the West Midlands Police fairly recently. But his sort of area of speciality, I suppose, is around disaster victim identification. So when you have major disasters, large numbers of people who die, um, bodies unidentified, um, and having to then identify those bodies and repatriate them to loved ones and it could be from the other side of the world. Well, that's Lee, Lee's speciality and I'm really looking forward to chatting to him all about that um, because it's not something I know very much about at all and uh, Lee knows shitloads about it. Okay, see you then. Bye. <laughs> Once we had a policeman. He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh.